Blog Talk Radio. And now, shining the light of biblical truth. This is Truth Be Told Radio with your host, Melissa Canchola. That's right. I'm your host, Melissa Canchola. Thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. Can I get started with Trusting God in the Desert by Dr. Vody Buckman. Here on Truth Be Told Radio. Of Exodus 16. And here we looked on last week at this process of God shaping Israel in the desert, of God forming them as his people in the desert, and of him using this process. We also pointed to the importance of our understanding these things in light of progressive revelation, in light of the way that God reveals himself progressively through the scriptures. And we saw that in doing so, we don't fall into the trap of seeing ourselves as completely divorced from things like Exodus 16, into the trap of believing that somehow passages like Exodus 16 are irrelevant to us. We saw in last week how Jesus himself used image directly from Exodus chapter 16 in order to teach about his relationship to the believer as this bread from heaven, this bread of life. We saw earlier when we paused and looked at the Lord's Supper in light of the Passover how Jesus is that Passover lamb and how when we gather before the Lord's Supper, we are remembering and also following through with the perpetual reminder of God's provision in and through the Exodus. That he gives a perpetual reminder for Israel and says that this is to be a forever thing. And that through the Lord's Supper, we are keeping this forever thing. But now we see him not only in the Lord's Supper, but we also see him as this bread from heaven. We see him uh, as the fulfillment of this type of God's provision for his people in the midst of the desert. We also saw his presence with his people in the cloud. Today we look at the bread more carefully and we look at the way that Israel interacts with God through the bread and the way that God interacts with and shapes Israel through the giving of the bread. This would become important as later on Israel will be tempted to forget God as their provider. They would forget that God is the one who gives us this day our daily bread. How are they going to forget that? Well, they're going to come into a land and not be wandering in the desert anymore. And so they will forget this daily dependence. They will have agriculture. And through their agriculture, they will have cycles that are dependable so that they know when the rainy seasons come, when it's time to plant, and when it's time to harvest. And they can plan their meals. They don't have to be dependent on God providing this food for them. Permanent homes, not having to wander around aimlessly. The temple, not having to wait for this sign of 
the presence of God in the cloud. An army not having to be defended by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, not having to depend on God's supernatural deliverance, depending on themselves, and ultimately a king, a human being to whom they can look. And with all of these temptations, it's going to be important that they continue to remember the God who took care of them in the desert. And when they don't remember God, or when they remember God wrongly, they are tempted towards sin. And in fact, their worship, for example, of Baal and Asheroth, this is about the God of the rains, the God who brings the crops, the God who brings agriculture. And part of their thinking was this. We serve this sort of desert nomadic God, and he can get us water out of rocks, and he can give us bread from heaven and provide us quail to eat. However, now that we've come into this land of the plains, this land of agriculture, there is another god, a pair of gods, the Baal and the Asherah, upon whom you depend when you're in this land. So in order to hedge our bets, we'll worship the god of Israel who got us out of Egypt, but we will also erect statues and monuments and idols to Baal and to Asherah so that they can smile upon us and bring the rains and we can have what we need to eat. So again, their idolatry is rooted and grounded in this idea of forgetting that it is God who gives us this day our daily bread. That was then. That's the simplistic thinking of Israel in the desert. That's the simplistic thinking of Israel when they come out of the desert and go into the plains and into the mountains. That certainly we don't do this. Certainly there aren't things that have brought us away from having an attitude toward God that says, give us this day our daily bread. Really? Five-year plan? Your ten-year plan? Your retirement plan, your IRA, your 401Ks, your stocks, your bonds, your mutual funds, your real estate investments, the equity in your home, your rental properties, your Social Security that's coming, all of these things tend to put us in a position where we forget that it is God who gives us this day our daily bread, which is why when any of the things on the aforementioned list go south, we immediately get this sort of sky-is-falling mentality because we, just like Israel, tend to forget that we are utterly dependent upon God day in, day out. And so we do need this reminder. We do need to see ourselves here in chapter 16. Look with me beginning at verse 13. We'll look at 13 through 21. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, they lay around the camp. And 
when the dew had gone up. I'm sorry, dew lay around the camp. Let me start that again. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take one omer, according to the number of the persons that is in each that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Seems like we've heard that phrase before, haven't we? Get used to it. Because you're going to hear it again and again and again. They did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till morning. And it bred worms and stank. Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning. By the way, that's another phrase you need to get used to. Moses was angry with them. We just kind of fill in the blanks the rest of the way through. They did not listen to Moses. Something happened, and Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it. As much as, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. What do we learn from this? What do we see in Israel and in ourselves as a result of this experience with the manna? Three things I want you to see. First, I want you to see that God provides for his people supernaturally. God provides for his people supernaturally. Verses 13 to 15, make this clear. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was this, on the face of the wilderness, a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. The people of Israel saw it. They said to one another, what is it? Part of where its name comes from, by the way. For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. There are two types of provision here. One I I call providential provision. This is just God in his providence bringing them to a place and bringing about circumstances that provide for them, bringing about this abundance. In this, for example, with the quail, listen to this from John Walton and Victor Matthews. Small, plump, migratory quail 
often come through the Sinai on their way north from the Sudan to Europe, generally in the morning or in the months of March and April. They generally fly with the wind and are driven to ground or water if caught in a crosswind. In their exhaustion, it is not unusual for them to fly so low that they can be easily caught. Quail looking for a place to land and rest have been known to sink small boats. And in the Sinai, they have been noted to cover the ground so densely, so densely that some land on the tops of others. Quail just piled up on top of each other. So it's not that, you know, God sort of makes these quails appear ex nihilo. He doesn't invent quail out of nothing. But this is a migration, a normal migration of quail. But the problem is that the normal migration of quail is only during a certain period of time and not nearly enough to feed well over a million people. So God, in his providence, has brought them to a place where there is a food source. But providentially, during this time, he provides it in such abundance that they can eat and eat regularly off of this food source. So, again, it's not that it's unknown for quail to be in this area. It's known for quail to be in this area. It's not that it's unknown for the quail to cover the ground. It's known for quail to cover the ground. But in this magnitude, it's unheard of. And with this consistency, it's unheard heard of. So God provides for them providentially. And we know that that's the way that God provides for all of us providentially. In his providence, everything that we have is provided for us. I don't care what it is that you have, what it is that you do, everything that you have is a result of God's providential care for you. Yes, but I did this and I did that. Of course you did. But you didn't invent whatever you did it with and you didn't give yourself the strength to do it. You didn't decide where you would be born. You didn't decide what technologies you would have at your disposal during this particular period in history. It is God and his providence who has done this for you. God cares for his people providentially. But not only is there this providential provision, but there's also the miraculous provision. That's where you get into the manna. The, the manna is not something seen there before or seen there since. There are many who've tried to argue that the manna is one of a number of normal sort of occurrences in the desert. However, all of those things fail to satisfy. John Calvin notes that there are eight factors that exclude a natural explanation and demand that we see this as no less than a miracle in the desert. And by the way, it's important to note the difference between these two things. It's important to note the difference between God's providence and God's miraculous activity. We use that word miracle far too often. And by definition, if something happens all the time, and it's part of the normal course of things, it is not miraculous. The example that I've used dozens of times from this very spot is childbirth. I love children as much as the next person, probably more. But childbirth 
is not a miracle. We know how it happens, and it happens all day, every day. It is not a miracle. There has only been one birth that was miraculous, and that was the birth of Jesus Christ. Amen? Every other birth has been providential, okay? It's been providential, not miraculous. Not miraculous. You, you know, missing a car on your way here, it, that's, that wasn't miraculous. That was providential. When something is miraculous, it's not part of the normal course of things. Eight things, as Calvin notes, points to the manner of being miraculous. Number one, it didn't appear before now. You ever thought about that? It didn't appear before now. They've been in the desert for a while. But up to this point, there hadn't been any manna. So it wasn't, Moses didn't say, hey, God wants you to know something. You know this stuff that's been on the ground every day? You can actually eat that. See, that would have been providential. Amen? We've been walking around. It's a funny thing, guys. I didn't even know this. But we've been walking around, and there's this stuff on the ground, and it melts when it gets hot, right? Here's what God wanted me to tell you. You can eat that stuff. Not the way it happened. It didn't appear before now. Number two, it was not affected by weather or season. It's not affected by weather or season. This is not something that just appeared seasonally. This is something that wasn't affected by weather or season. Number three, it was sufficient for the people. It was sufficient for the people. Perhaps millions of people. And there was enough dew on the ground forming manna for these people to eat. Four, it was doubled for the Sabbath. It was doubled for the Sabbath. If this was a natural occurrence, number one, if it's a natural occurrence, doesn't make sense that it only happens six days out of the week if it's just a natural occurrence. Right? That makes no sense whatsoever. This was just a natural occurrence that the people that really, what natural occurrence do you know that only takes place six days out of the week and always doesn't take place on the same one day out of the week, every week? That's not a natural occurrence. That's a supernatural occurrence. Five, if they preserved it overnight, it putrefied. Six, it followed them wherever they went. It followed them wherever they went. Seven, as soon as they entered a fruitful country, the manna ceased. Once they didn't need it anymore, it was gone. Once they came into the land that God promised them, it was gone. It's not there. It's not there today for people who go wandering in the desert of the Sinai. There's no manna for them. It was gone. And eight, the Sabbath portion did not decay. This is miraculous. Every morning, go collect it. Go collect all you can eat, but eat all you collect. Don't try to keep it until the next day. And they tried to keep it until the next day, but it spoiled. It went rotten, and there was worms. But what we're going to see next week is that on the Sabbath, God provides beforehand for the Sabbath. There's a double portion. There's, there's miracle number one, that there's a double portion, and that they're able to go get a double portion. Here's miracle number two. Any other day you keep it overnight, it goes rotten. But you keep it for the Sabbath, and it's good for the next day. 
This is miraculous provision. This is not just God's providential care. This is God's miraculous care for his people. This reminds both Israel and us that God is not bound by the circumstances that limit us. Amen? God is not bound by the circumstances that limit us. This is what they have to remember. This is what they have to be taught. Because remember their entire lives, for all of these people, they've been in slavery in Egypt. And their thought had to be that God either was not listening to their prayers or that he was not as powerful as the gods of Egypt and therefore couldn't deliver, him, deliver them. So what does he do? Through those ten plagues, he demonstrates that he's more powerful than the gods of Egypt. He could have done it in one plague, but he does it in ten in order to disabuse them of the notion that somehow the gods of Egypt are real and have any kind of real power. And then secondly, he takes them through the desert. He could have just brought them immediately into the land of promise, but he doesn't. He brings them into the desert, and they stay there for 40 years. And God provides for them for 40 years so that this generation and the next generation and every generation after it will know that God sovereignly and supernaturally cares for his people. This is not normal. They are not normal. There is a difference between what God does for others and what God does for them. He is their children. We are his children. God's care for us is not like his care for others. And it's not because Israel was special, and it's not because we're special. It is because God has set his love on us as his people in order to display his glory. That's the only reason and explanation for it. This is what drives us to prayer and worship. This is what separates Christianity from other religions. You see, it's not, it's not that we are appeasing God or controlling God. It is that God is sovereign, that he created the world, and that he sustains the world and everything in it, and we are thereby dependent upon God. Because of it. This is what drives us to prayer. This is what drives us to worship. What drives you away from prayer and worship? Self-reliance. Self-reliance. You know, I, one of the things that I like to do when we go out to eat, and sometimes I remember, sometimes I don't, but our server comes, I just like to sort of break the ice for spiritual conversation and just ask you know, we're about to pray for our food. Is there any way in particular that we could be praying for you? You know, the most common answer that I get to that question. There are some people who stop and they say, yes, you know, you can be praying about this, this, and this. I can't, I can't remember, you know, I can't tell you how many times God has just shown in his providence the, the blessing of this. So many times, hey, we're about to eat um, and pray for our food. Any way in particular we can be praying for you? Yes. I just got a call earlier that dot, 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 please pray for me. Yes, after work today, I'm going to be driving to go see my mother. She's sick, and we don't know what's going to just it, it, moments like that. But that's not the normal answer. 
the normal answer to, we're about to pray for our food, is there any way we can pray for you, is, nope, everything's okay. In other words, we only need prayer when things are not okay. When things are okay, I got this. I got this. I am in control. Everything is all right. I'm managing it all, and I don't need God right now. However, if the wheels fall off and I run into anything that's too big for me, then I'll let you know, and we can call on God. Folks, hear me in this. Hear me in this. This is why regular family worship in your home is so important. This is why regular prayer in your home is so important. This is why calling our families together and going before God day by day is so important. Because if we're not doing that, then here's what we're communicating to our children. We don't need God. And all of a sudden, we're not engaging in family worship. We're not praying regularly. We're not calling upon God. And suddenly, difficulty comes. We get a phone call and somebody's sick. We get a phone call and somebody's died. We get a phone call and there's some tragedy in the family. And all of a sudden we want to gather the family together and say, let's pray. What have you just communicated? Prayer is for when we need something. Prayer is for when things go badly. Prayer is for when we don't have this under control. That's what we communicate. But what does regular family worship communicate to our children? Regular daily family worship, daily devotions communicate to our children, we need God every day. I need thee every hour. That's what it communicates to our children. Then the phone call comes and we pray, and it's not foreign to us. It's just who we are. And why is it who we are? It's who we are because we recognize that we are dependent upon God for our daily bread. May I ask you a question, sir? Are you leading regular family devotions in your home? Or are you communicating to your wife and to your children that you don't need God right now? Are you in prayer on a regular basis? Or are you showing your family by your actions that it's just not that important? Is it something that you started and then you ran out of steam because it became too much of a routine for you? Because if that's the case, may I ask you why you still brush your teeth? That's a routine. Yeah, well, if I don't do that, my breath starts to think. To, to think. But what do you think happens to you spiritually when you're disconnecting from God like that? when you're acting as though it's not something that you need on a regular and ongoing basis. I am not calling upon you to do this because I believe that there's going to be a quid pro quo. I'm calling upon you to do this because I believe that God is worthy of it and because I believe that your soul needs it, that your family needs it. I'm calling you to this because this is who we are. His mercies are new every morning, and we ought to thank him for them every day. If we're not doing it, 
then what are we saying about what our family is based on? What are we saying about what's central to us and what's essential to us? What are we saying about the desperate need of our souls to feed on Christ and to be reminded of the gospel day after day after day? I'm not reminding you of this so that you can go home and be good. I'm reminding you of this because you're not good. And you need to be reminded how not good you are. You need the good news every day. Your family needs the good news every day. This is our daily bread. We're reading the scriptures and feeding upon them. Again, I'm not telling you you need to do this so that you can be good. I'm telling you that you need to do this because you're not. Because you're not. And you need to be reminded of it. Your family needs to be reminded of it. Secondly, not only does God provide supernaturally, but he provides sufficiently. Sufficiently. Look at verse 16. This is what the Lord God has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. Folks, don't miss this. They weren't just sustained. They were satisfied. Amen? They were satisfied. Gather as much as you can eat. God is not stingy. Amen. God is not stingy. This is one of the major fallacies of those outside of Christianity. See, we believe that outside of Christianity, there is this life of plenty. There is this life of abundance. There is this life of overflowing joy, provision, substance, everything else. But when you walk into Christianity, you walk into it with your head hung low, and you walk into it with a dour face, because everybody knows that when you become a Christian, it's the end of joy. It's the end of satisfaction. It's the end of overflowing abundance. And in Christianity, you're not really a Christian unless you're miserable. That's the great myth. That's not the God whom we serve. The God whom we serve gives to us in abundance. He is not stingy. He gives sufficiently. Notice some of these phrases. Each one of you as much as he can eat. It says some gathered more, some gathered less. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. In other words, compared to an omer, he gives them this, this idea of an omer. It's a daily ration of bread. You go out and gather an omer. You go out and gather it, and then um, when they measured it against the omer, what they found was that the people who had gathered a little more, they didn't have too much. 
And the people who had gathered a little less, they didn't have any lack. In other words, each person could gather what they needed, and there was enough for everyone to have whatever it was that they needed to be satisfied. This is how God provides for his people. And don't miss the significance of this. The desert is a foreboding place of scarcity and want. It has challenges in terms of food and water. This is why you don't go to the desert. You go through the desert. Amen? And when you go through the desert, you want to make sure that you have enough supplies to go through the desert. And one of the difficulties in going through the desert is having enough livestock to carry the stuff you need, but not too much, so that you then lose your supplies. So it's this balancing act. We've got to have enough water, but we can't overburden our animals and our people with carrying all the water. So how far can we get? Where's the next place that we can get water? Where's the next place that we can get food? This is how you go through a desert, folks. And yet God has his people in the desert, and they are satisfied every day. The desert is a challenge in terms of its harsh elements. And yet again, they have clothing, and their clothing is sufficient. They're not burned and chapped by the sun because God cares for them in the desert, and his care is sufficient. Hence, God's providence shines all the more. When they go into the land of promise, it is as though God has given them this 40-year history in order to say, Really? You're worried now? You're worried in the land flowing with milk and honey that the God who sustains you in the desert can't sustain you here? Again, saints, don't get arrogant with this because this is you and this is me. God saves us. And then we worry about whether or not he can sustain us. And we worry about whether or not he can keep us. God saves us and something happens. And all of a sudden, the God who could take you from death to life can't be depended upon to get you the rest of the way. This is our natural tendency. And this is why we need the desert and the remembrance of the desert. This is why we need to remember God's sufficient provision and supernatural provision in the person and work of Christ, that he provided Christ for us, that Christ is our bread, and Christ is most assuredly enough. He is the God-man. He is God who wrapped himself in flesh. He is God who not only took flesh upon himself, but took sin upon himself, who took the penalty for sin upon himself who died and rose again on the third day. He is God who has paid for the sins of his people. He is God who has rescued us from ourselves. How much more can he be depended upon for sufficiency in our everyday lives? This is the measure, message of the desert. God provides for his people supernaturally. God provides for his people sufficiently. There is nothing you need that God cannot supply. And the Christian walk is not about you wandering aimlessly in want all the time. 
Come to me, all you labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is what he provides. Thirdly, not only does God supply for his people supernaturally and sufficiently, but God supplies for his people and provides for his people daily. Daily. He's not far from us. Look at the next part of this. Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning. Again, leave it in your house, not leave it on the ground. You only take from the ground what you need. And if you leave it on the ground, the sun comes up and it melts, nothing to worry about. He's saying don't leave it in your house. Don't hoard it. Don't hoard it. Look at my barns. My barns are filled to overflow. It's awesome. I'm good now. You remember that parable? What does Jesus say? You fool. Tonight your soul is going to be required of you. What good is all that stuff that you stored in your barns? Don't store it over, he says. But they did not listen to Moses. There's that phrase. Some left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank. Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. This taught Israel a number of things that it also teaches us. There are a number of things that it teaches us on the positive and appropriate side. And if we don't think about it rightly, there are a number of things that it teaches us on the other side. Let me start with the first. On the positive side, this taught Israel discipline. They had to go gather the provisions every day. This taught them discipline. And interestingly enough, this is one of the things that we tend to forget in our relationship with God, that it does involve discipline, that it does involve us committing to some things regularly. You know, there's such an emphasis on this idea of, you know, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And so we just sit back and we relax and we go with the flow. And it's just all about the, you know, the, the moment and the here and the now and da-da-da-da-da. And because of that, we move away from the idea of disciplining ourselves. Apostle Paul makes it clear in his epistle to Timothy and elsewhere that he disciplined himself and that we are to discipline ourselves. This was a way that God was teaching his people discipline. Daily they would go and gather Secondly, it taught them humility. It taught them humility. How so? Well, it taught them humility because they had to go and gather what God provided. And whatever God provided was what they ate. In addition to humility and discipline, it taught them dependence. It taught them dependence. They had to depend on God. Go gather your food. Only gather your food for today. Well, well, well what if? Here, here's the question. Here's why you store it over until tomorrow. What if God forgets us? 
And how many of us live like that? As though God would give his only begotten son to die for our sins, to redeem us and to save us, only to later lose track of us, to forget us. That is not our God. It teaches dependence. And the only reason you keep it over is just in case God forgets. Maybe he won't forget us altogether, but maybe tomorrow it won't be enough. So I need to make sure that we have enough. And it also tested their faith. In all of this, it tested their faith. However, with your hard hearts, my hard heart, it could teach us other lessons. To the hard heart, you don't learn discipline. You learn to be discontent. Manna, again. You, you, you go from, we get to live another day, because in the midst of the desert, God provided bread again, to manna, again. The heart also becomes resentful. Instead of humility and dependence upon God, we learn resentment because we don't want to be humble and we don't want to be dependent upon God. We want to be independent and proud and arrogant. Which is why the heart then yearns for independence from God. But what is the difference? The difference in this first list and this second list is a question of perspective. Do I see myself as a person in desperate need of a deliverer? Or do I see myself as a person who can do, do just fine on my own? And our natural tendency is the latter and not the former. My, my natural tendency is to see myself as a person who can do just fine on my own and not as a person who's dependent upon God, not as a person who recognizes that I need God to give me this day my daily bread. But my natural tendency is to say, I got this, God, and if I run into anything I can't handle, then I'll call you. That's my natural tendency, and it's your natural tendency. And because that's our natural tendency, when we run up against this truth and this reality that we are dependent upon God, then it doesn't make us humble. It makes us resentful. What does that look like? I'll tell you what it looks like. You're going through your Christian life, and as you go through your Christian life, you experience a difficulty. And when you experience that difficulty, the disappointment, whatever it is, you go to your doctor and you get bad news. Um, you, you, you overcome an area of sin in your life, and then you fall back into it. You have a relationship that becomes disappointing to you. Whatever it is, whatever it is, you go through it, and all of a sudden the wheels fall off, everything's bad, but God in his grace, in his mercy, and in his kindness brings you through that situation. 
in the case of the physical ailment, there's a physical ailment, and all of a sudden you're in despair, you're despondent, everything else. But God brings you through that, and all of a sudden it's praise God. Here's my testimony. God brought me through. Or if it's something that has been holding you down, some kind of addiction, and then you fall, and then all of a sudden God gets you back up again, and you gain victory again, and it's praise God. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. It's good. Or if it's some kind of relational issue, there's a relationship that's harmful or hurting you or disappointing disappointing you, and God delivers you from that, or God heals that relationship, all of a sudden it's amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord, God is good, you're stronger for it. A year later, two years later, you're sick again, and all of a sudden, instead of saying, I know God, I'm dependent upon God every day. I was here before. I'll probably be here again. God took me by the hand and walked me through it before. God's going to take me by the hand and walk me through it again. Instead of that attitude, our attitude becomes one of resentment. I thought we'd settled this, God. I thought we were done with this. I thought this was over. I thought we were finished with this. I I went through the sickness or whatever it was, and and I learned something, and and I got closer to you, and now all of a sudden, after teaching me my lesson and me getting closer to you, it happens again? What's wrong? Why don't you love me? See, this is the natural tendency. It hurt me again. I can't believe you let him hurt me again. I can't believe you let him disappoint me again. This is the natural tendency. And it is all rooted and grounded in self-reliance. It is all rooted and grounded in a perspective that does not understand that when God said, when, when Jesus said to us, When you pray, say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. He meant that. What he meant was that our prayer life was to be rooted and grounded in dependence, that we are constantly to remind ourselves that we are dependent upon God. You don't have it figured out, and you won't have it figured out. Because the Christian life is not something you figure out. It is something you walk through and are shaped by and are formed by and conformed to the image of Christ by. Christianity is not something we use. It's something we become. Difficulty is life. Amen? 
And becoming a Christian doesn't mean that life becomes something other than difficulty. Becoming a Christian means that your difficulty becomes something that is less significant than the reality to which you now hold. That's what becoming a Christian means. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean I don't get sick anymore. Becoming a Christian means that when I get sick like everybody else gets sick, I don't become afraid like those who have no hope because I recognize that my life is hidden with Christ. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean that I never battle again with besetting sins. It means that besetting sins remind me of my dependence upon God and that my sanctification is not complete yet. Being a Christian doesn't mean that people don't hurt you or disappoint you anymore. But being a Christian means that you no longer put your hope in those people who hurt you and disappoint you, but your hope is in Christ who has redeemed you and who is a friend that is closer than a brother who will never disappoint you, and he's the only one who won't disappoint you. And it means remembering that you disappoint God more than any individual has ever disappointed you. And yet, by his grace, it is covered in his blood. So remember that when your fellow man disappoints you and falls short. All of this, all of this we learn from bread provided in the desert. Because this bread is not just bread. It is God's supernatural, sufficient, daily provision for his people. And whether you're talking about the Old Covenant or the New Covenant, this is our relationship with God. And again, these are not my words. These are Jesus' words when he says that he is bread of life. He is the true bread that comes from God, the true bread that comes from heaven, so that Christ is my supernatural, sufficient, daily provision from God. I need Jesus. You need Jesus, just like your body needs food to eat every day, you need Jesus. This is why we gather week after week. This is why we sit before these ordinary means of grace again and again and again, because this weekly reminder is symbolic of the daily reminder we need God. You're not okay, saints. You're not good enough. You're not strong enough. You're not smart enough. You're not righteous enough. You're not anything enough. But the good news is, Christ is more than enough. Oh, sinner. If you come into this room today depending on anything other than Christ as your daily bread, if you dare to walk into this room depending on yourself to be good enough, 
depending on yourself to be righteous enough, depending on yourself to be wise enough, depending on yourself to get you from this day to tomorrow, please, please let that go. You can't get yourself out of this room on your own intelligence and your own righteousness apart from the mercy of God. Throw yourself upon his mercy. Cling to his mercy in the person of Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin. Turn from it. Run to Jesus. Beg for God's forgiveness. And don't let him go until you have it. Because that is indeed your only hope. You need Christ. Every day. Every hour. Every moment. And there will never be a moment when you don't need Christ. He is our bread sent from heaven. Let's pray. Oh, God, it is so easy for us to look at Israel in the desert and not see ourselves. It is so easy to look at Israel in the desert, point a wagging finger of condemnation because they failed again, because they didn't believe again, because they didn't obey again, because they have to be rebuked again, because they have to be reminded again, but, oh, God, would you help us see ourselves in this? Would you help us see that we, too, have been delivered that we too have been provided for and that we too have become self-reliant, that we too have become arrogant, that we too are disobedient, that we too act as though we have no desperate need of you. And in your reminding, would you also remind us that there is good news And the good news is that though we are faithless, he remains faithful. The good news is though we've dropped the ball yet again, you are not depending upon us to carry it. The good news is that though we have become lazy and lackadaisical, that you do not slumber and you do not sleep. The good news is that when you reprove and rebuke your children, it is to conform us to the image of Christ. Grant by your grace that we might receive it as precisely that, and that we might cling all the more diligently to the cross. Grant by your grace that those who have entered this room trusting in anything other than Christ would flee to him, would cling to him, would trust in him, would hope in him, and in nothing and no one else. Grant this, we pray, so that Christ might indeed have the fullness of the reward for which he died. This we ask. In his name, 
and for his sake. Amen. It doesn't take millions of years. This is Ken Ham, CEO of Answers in Genesis, the Creation Museum and Ark Encounter. Evolutionary teaching has indoctrinated us to think it takes millions of years to make a fossil. But it doesn't. It just takes the right conditions. To make a fossil, you need to bury a plant or animal quickly. This keeps it from being eaten or rotting away. And once it's buried, the organism can mineralize to become a fossil. You know, this process doesn't take millions of years. It can happen very quickly. For example, a miner left his hat in a mine and a few years later, it was hard as a rock. So what happened in the past that quickly buried the creatures we find fossilized today? Well, it's the global flood of Noah's day. Want to know more about fossils and the flood? Visit our faith-affirming website to learn more about how the global flood of Noah's day changed the world at AnswersRadio.com. What is God's will for your life? Well, the Bible says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Not the answer you were looking for? That's probably because what you actually want is to have your fortune told. Many ask about the will of God as though it's the Christian equivalent of wishing upon a star. When they talk about God's will for their life, what they're probably talking about is the hopes and dreams they have, and it's God's will for them to have them. But the Bible isn't going to tell you what career you should pursue, or where you will live, or what tax bracket you should be in, or whether you should get married or not get married. For those kinds of questions, the Bible says wisdom is found in an abundance of counselors. Ephesians 5 15 through 17 says this, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, understanding the will of the Lord doesn't mean what he's going to reveal to you in a vision or a dream or some false prophet trying to con you. It's understanding what he's already revealed in his word. Know what the word of God says and how to apply it, and it will make you wise. The Bible also says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. So what is God's will for your life? that you praise him in all circumstances, and that you live holy lives in Christ Jesus, according to his word, the Bible, when we understand the text. I'll be the first to admit that there was a time that my theological journey was quite the bumpy ride. After I left the New Age and the pursuit of trying to understand what the Bible said and why my beliefs were wrong to begin with and unbiblical, There were times that my brain cells would fist fight each other, yearning to be smarter at brain selling. And there was this one belief in particular that I had a very hard time trying to brain sell until one verse uh, spiritually clotheslined me. Now, if you've been around my channel any amount of time, you know that I am an ex-New Ager. I'm actually an ex-New Sauter, but it, it sounds clunkier to say it that way. And I came out of the New Age in 2011, but it took about six months to almost a year to unlearn a lot of what I believed. And it was more than just unlearning. I had to understand why many of these beliefs I learned were unbiblical. I mean, the point of our Christian beliefs is to love God and love people 
know what the Bible says, spread the gospel, you know, all the things. But just being real with you guys, sometimes it wasn't that black and white for me. For somebody like me, I really wanted to understand why the Bible said what it said and why other beliefs were not biblical, even though they seemed like they were. The one belief that I had a hard time disentangling and sorting out was the law of attraction. Now, if you're unaware of what the law of attraction is, I can almost say with some degree of confidence that you have seen this in our culture in some way. Basically, this belief says that like attracts like, meaning that positive and negative thoughts and energy will bring about corresponding positive or negative experiences and outcomes in a person's life based on their thoughts and feelings. It's the idea that your thoughts and intentions shape your reality. And the basic idea behind the law of attraction is that if you consistently focus on positive thoughts, desires, and intentions, you will attract positive experiences and opportunities into your life. Now, on the other side of the coin, if you dwell on negative thoughts and fears, you may attract negative experiences and setbacks in your life. You'll mostly see the teachings of the law of attraction gaining popularity in in self-help books, personal development circles, um, practices like visualization, affirmations, positive thinking. When I believed in the law of attraction, I believed it was a law just as real as gravity. I believed that we were basically just all spiritual mirrors and whatever vibration or frequency we give out we get back. And it seemed really legit to me because of the supposed science, the physics that were used to say that this was an actual law of the universe. Turns out if you say anything as scientific or physics on any level, people will flock to it, except gender. Now, here's the tricky part. The way that the law of attraction was framed to me was that this was something that Jesus himself taught and scripture taught. I still have marks in my Bible from when I got out of the New Age that are still in my Bible right now that I would show you if I had it in front of me, where I would make this star with like a squiggly mark above it because that was an indication to me that I still had a hard time understanding what the actual biblical definition of that scripture was. And it was more than that. It was an emotional struggle too. In this way, I kind of relate to former Mormons and to former Jehovah's Witnesses when they come to the Bible with fresh eyes and don't have the watchtower goggles on or the Mormon goggles on. It's like they kind of have to start from the ground up and reform their beliefs around Scripture instead of what their religion taught about Scripture. And that takes some work. In my case, there were lots of things that I didn't really need a lot of help understanding or unlearning, but where a scripture was misused, I had to do a lot of extra work in this area. And the law of attraction misuses numerous scriptures and other places in the Bible and makes it seem like these are teachings from God and Jesus. Just one example is Matthew 7, 7, which actually this scripture is what they would use as the formula for the law of attraction. Ask, believe, and receive. Like another is Proverbs 23, 7, where it's talking about uh, how a person is in their heart, how they think in their heart, so is he. Another one is uh, Galatians 6, 7. I remember that one because of the sowing and the reaping. What you speak is what you sow, and that's what you'll reap. I mean, they just shred these scriptures out of their context and just mess them all up. This is a belief that a lot of people want to believe in. I mean, you're a little drunk with power. 
At this point, being told that you can wield the powers of the universe based on your thoughts and feelings, I mean, come on, the devil eats this kind of stuff for breakfast. He loves it. And unfortunately, humans love this too. So there's a temptation there behind teachings like this. But the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of truth and the beauty of Jesus himself is that when you love him, you want to obey him. You make him your Lord and you die to yourself. So that means that you want truth no matter what. You want to know what he teaches, whether you like it or not. Your intention is pleasing and loving him and wanting truth, not power. I knew it was unbiblical, flat out. I knew the source of the law of attraction wasn't biblical and not of God, but I really needed to understand this at a deeper level. I didn't understand that if the law of attraction wasn't of God, then why did it seem to work sometimes? Why were there results with some people? That was one thing I just could not let go of. Like I needed my aha moment to really help me understand how this wasn't what Jesus taught. I basically needed a theological throat punch. So I did what I recommend and still recommend. Literally every new Christian does, no matter what your background is. Read the Bible. And I get it. It's a 2,000-year-old Jewish history book given to us by God, and there's going to be some cultural things and words that we might need to work a little bit more to understand. But I promise you, not only is the Bible understandable, but it's almost like you're getting a spiritual bath when you read it. So I started reading, and I started studying it. And it was when I came across the book of James that it happened. Specifically, it was James chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. I'm going to read it to you. It says, you desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. I still remember how I felt when I read this. You have to understand how groundbreaking this was for me. All right, here I was, not only kind of holding on to the beliefs I had of the law of attraction, but I was also praying and asking God to help me unlearn this teaching or understand how it was unbiblical. And it was as if the scriptures reached out, out of the page and grabbed me around my neck and screamed at me. It was awesome. Let me break it down just a little bit more, okay? It says, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. In the law of attraction, I have seen so many people try to manifest something, but they don't have it. Usually, the top two things that people want are prosperity and health. You always wanted those two things on some level. So if people didn't get it, it's like they would force it. And I remember doing this. I remember thinking that I had attracted a bouquet of red tulips to myself, but I clearly understood that I had set things in motion to make that happen. And it's like the confirmation bias just kept the belief going, even though I was the catalyst to make it come to me to begin with, you're not really allowed to, to think negatively at all because critical thinking is seen as negative thinking. You're supposed to believe no matter what. Even if you don't see the results, you are supposed to speak and think as if you had it. So I would very often see people claim things in their life that they, they did not have 
and they lived and acted as if they had it. By all means, it almost honestly was like a false reality, a delusion that people lived in. In this scripture, it says people desire and they don't have it, so they'll do whatever it takes to bring it into their life, and it causes death. And then there's the second part, you don't have because you don't ask God. Now, contextually speaking, this is simply saying that the, as saints, we petition to God and ask him for whatever it is that we want or need. But in my mind, reading this at the time, it was suddenly so clear to me that God was sovereign. It suddenly became so clear that God makes the decision of what we of what we get ultimately, no matter what kind of positive vibes or positive thinking or words I speak. Ultimately, it's his will at the end of the day. See, the word that stuck out to me was ask. With the law of attraction, you don't ask, you affirm. You don't say, I will be healed. No, no, no. You say, I am healed. You don't ask, you demand it. But it was really verse 3 that, that undid it for me. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. I remember gasping out loud at this passage. This was exactly what I was looking for. This verse right here was the aha moment I was looking for, and I got it. I understood that just because we ask and just because we think we wanted or needed it does not always mean we are asking with right motives. And what defines our motives? Well, a lot of it has to do with our relationship with God and how we understand him. It's perfectly possible to ask God for something that we might have the best intentions for, but our motives are short-sighted. See, this is one of the biggest problems with elevating man and demoting God is that we make God like us. We think that God doesn't have a grander or greater plan through our suffering, or maybe he said no to something because he's God Almighty, the great I am, and knows more than we do. Humans are very pleasure-oriented, and we love instant gratification. We want what we want, and we want it now. And we kind of look at God as if he's just this magic genie, ready and willing to give us whatever it takes to make us happy. Not only is this not biblical, but this is an entirely different God. This is a different Jesus. And then verse 4, just put the cherry on top for me at the time. It says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Honestly, it made me really excited to read more scripture. I think that's how it should be. There's something very beautiful about stumbling upon passages like this that really help us understand God and know who he is and what beliefs do not glorify him. So that's my story. I'm actually really glad you have finally made a video about this because I've been wanting to share this for a while. But not only just because of that, but I want to know who else this has happened to. I would love to know what Bible verses really helped you reform your faith, to disentangle your faith, and really helped you to know who Jesus is. I'd love to read about it in the comments below. And also be sure to check out the description for more information. 
fall, Roe is on the ballot. A woman's right to make decisions about her own body has been a losing issue for Republicans since the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. Democrats scored big in some key races. Notable wins include Ohio, which voted to enshrine abortion rights at the state level. The House of Delegates, Republicans control the state Senate. Democrats control, uh, as you just heard, abortion front and center in this campaign. And here we are, two years after the Dobbs decision, and the Republicans have no idea how to message it. And two years after the Dobbs decision, they're still getting outraised by uh, Democrats in every major election and every major issue. You don't have to be a political pundit, and frankly, I don't know why you'd want to be, nor do you have to be Belshazzar. That's an Old Testament reference if you haven't unhitched your Old Testament. To read the writing on the wall, single pro-choice women, they are on fire since Roe v. Wade was overturned, and they are mega-energized to vote en masse because they want to ensure the Procreative Act has no procreative consequences. And if the election results of 2023 are any indicator of 2024 results, most, most red candidates will lose because of the life issue. You don't want that. I don't want that. But unlike political pontificators who get you all whipped up and tell you, we're not going to take it anymore, Twisted Sister. We have to do something about this. And then they never suggest anything. I would like to encourage you to do one of two things or both. You can make a difference in this upcoming election. Not to mention, you know, some babies might live. If you don't want people voting wrong, then their thinking needs to be changed. And the best way to do that, the best way to help somebody think better is to change their beliefs so that their brain gets wired biblically and then they will vote rightly. In other words, if you want to win the upcoming election, the primary, the chief thing, that was kind of a political pun there, wasn't it? The primary thing that you can do is actually share your faith. If you want to win the upcoming election, then go preach about election. That was that was a Calvinist joke. Second thing that you can do to help win in 2024 is to persuade pro-choicers that the contents of a mother's womb, um, it's not akin to a mole, just a blob of tissue. After all, nobody debates or languishes over the decision to have a mole removed. And with the possible exception of Cindy Crawford, nobody cries when they have a mole removed. So how do you persuade people to vote for life? Persuade them that the contents of a mother's womb is a whole innocent human being. If we don't change people's hearts and minds, I'm telling you, prepare to be mega, not mega, mega disappointed this November in order to equip you, me, all believers to win hearts and minds, we would actually like to give you a free resource. No strings attached. We want to send you 13 episodes of our series, Life is Best. Seriously, it is the single best pro-life resource available. Normally, we sell it like $25, $30. We want to give it away. We think this is that important. If we don't start arguing persuasively for life, Look out in November of 2024. Did I mention it's free? So if you're concerned about the upcoming election, 
This is a way for you to make a difference. Get the resource, show it to your church, create a bunch of pro-life apologists. This could make a difference. And just to wet your whistle, here's a snippet. This will show, this 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 thing is the bomb diggity. And did I mention it's free? I think the greatest sin in the world is bringing children into the world that have disease from their parents, that have no chance in the world to be a human being, practical, delinquents, prisoners, all sorts of things just must when they're born. That to me is the greatest sin that people can, can commit. I don't consider it a human being. Yes, it's another human life, but it's their body. It's not exactly something, but then again, it, it is something. Kind of more like a bunch of cells. To me, they're not alive, so like... The child is not technically alive. You should have the right to end the child's life if, 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 if it needs to be. It's only potential Abortion kills the potential. As Christians, we know biblically, scientifically, and intuitively that the unborn are distinct, living, and whole human beings. That is why we've always got to direct this conversation back to the question, what is it? Scientifically, we know that the unborn are alive. They fit the definition of what an organism is. They undergo cellular reproduction, meaning they grow. They metabolize by turning food into energy. They respond to stimuli. The unborn is distinct. That is, it is a separate entity from its mother. It is not part of her body. The unborn has its own unique genetic code. It's different from moms and dads. You don't need a PhD to tell you that human life is more valuable than the life of the ants that you buy bait traps for. You don't need a college professor to say that. You know that full well with your moral intuitions. And you can trust those to give us basic information about what we do and don't know as we're talking about the value of human life. The science of embryology shows us that from the earliest stages of development, in other words, when you were at the two-cell stage, you were a distinct, living, and whole human being. You didn't come from an embryo. You once were one. There's no essential difference between that embryo you once were and the young adult you are today that would justify killing you back then. You're larger, but body size doesn't give you value. You're more developed, but we don't think two-year-olds that aren't as developed as 20-year-olds have less of a right to life. You're in a different environment. You're out of the womb. You were once in. But I would argue where you are has no bearing on who you are. When you left home this morning and came to class, you didn't stop being you. And finally, degree of dependency. Sure. You depended on the mother for survival, your mother in your case, but dependency on another human being is not a good reason for saying we can kill you. Hey, if you want four more years of Bidenomics, please just, just carry on. But if you want to see elections won, souls saved, and babies' lives spared, click the thingamajiggy below and get Life is Best for free, and please note, because this resource, no strings attached, it is absolutely free. If you're an evangelical, it's a sin to not take us up on this offer, because evangelicals, I mean, it's kind of a sin to not take advantage of a good deal. This is, and it will equip you to win every single life conversation that you have. Discuss. Fossils, rapidly buried. This is Ken Ham, whose ministry has produced Answers Bible Curriculum for church and homeschool. Many people think it took millions of years for us to get the billions of fossils we have today. But the fossil record shows evidence of having been laid down very quickly. Jellyfish don't have any hard parts, 
so they decay within hours. And yes, we have perfectly preserved jellyfish fossils. At the Creation Museum, we have a fossil of a fish buried so fast that it didn't finish swallowing. Fossils found all around the world show evidence of rapid burial. The Bible provides explanation. The global flood of Noah's day would have rapidly buried creatures all over the world. The Bible's history, it explains what we see in the fossil record. Learn more about the fossil record when you visit AnswersRadio.com. You'll be encouraged to see how the evidence confirms the Bible at AnswersRadio.com. Christian, you shouldn't be telling a lost, unrepentant sinner that God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life. Without Christ, they're not actually in his love. They're under his wrath. And their idea of God's plan for their life is their plan for their life. So you walk up to what we know about a sinner. He is self-centered. He's autonomous. He wants to do his own thing. He has his own dreams. And he is in love with himself. So you walk up to this man and you say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And he goes, what? God loves me? That's fantastic. I love me too. And you're even saying that he loves me more than I love me? Now that sounds impossible. How could anyone have such a great love? And God has a wonderful plan for my life. Oh, I have a wonderful plan for my life too. And you're telling me that if I accept this Jesus, he will help me with all my wonderful plans and I can have my best life now? Well, then I'll take a God like that. You got two of them? What you should tell an unbeliever is what the Bible says. Show them their sin according to the scriptures, that they have broken the law of the creator of the universe, and they stand guilty before a holy God. It's only when the Spirit convicts them of their sin that they can know the grace and mercy of God in the sacrifice of his Son. Then they will see the immensity of his love and his wonderful plan through the gospel of Jesus Christ when we understand the text. Slow, gradual processes? This is Ken Ham, a missionary with a passion for sharing God's word with the world. According to secular geologists, the layers of coal we find around the world were laid down slowly over millions of years. But there are big problems with this idea. For example, here in Kentucky, there are upright trees that go through many layers of coal. But if this coal was formed over millions of years, how could a tree remain upright and intact over those millions of years? It couldn't. Layers of coal don't provide evidence of slow processes. A much better explanation is that they were formed in a global catastrophe, the global flood of Noah's day. When we start with the Bible, what we see in the world makes sense of what God's Word says. Want to know more about the global flood of Noah's day? Visit our Bible upholding website at AnswersRadio.com. That's AnswersRadio.com. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at TruthBeToldRadio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D. R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M TruthBeToldRadio.com Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to TruthBeToldRadioShow at gmail.com Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. 
So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you'd like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. If you are a disciple of Jesus, then God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, just like he did for the first disciples. What kind of wonderful plan? Well, Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew, his brother, was also crucified. James was executed by the sword. John, his brother, was exiled and died of old age. Philip was tortured and then crucified upside down. Bartholomew was skinned alive and he too crucified upside down. Thomas was speared to death while praying. Matthew was also killed by the spear. Thaddeus and Simon and the other James all crucified. God's wonderful plan for you is to preach the gospel and make disciples, just like these men did. It's why they were killed. The same Jesus who personally called these men has called us to do the same, even if it hurts. In Acts 5, the disciples were arrested and beaten for preaching the gospel. When they were let go, they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. And every day they continued to share the gospel. Jesus said that you are blessed when others revile and persecute you and speak evil against you falsely on account of him. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So God indeed has a wonderful plan for those who follow Jesus. For those who don't, his plan is to destroy all evildoers who do not believe in his Son. Even in this, God will be glorified. So you shouldn't tell an unbeliever that God has a wonderful plan for their life. You should tell them to turn from their sin and follow Jesus. Only his disciples are forgiven their sins, saved from death, and know his ways are wonderful. When we understand the text. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's quite simple. Do you believe that? I don't. Everything that's happened is all pure chance. The passion you're giving in a belief for the foundation of, of life is immaculate, sir. I, I respect it. I love it. Oh, that's I, great. I love passion. And if it's honest passion, like the one I'm feeling from you, I'll, I'll, I'll believe it. Nathan and Jacob, they're good Bible names. Did you know that? Do you know who Nathan was in the Bible? I do not. You don't know what he did? No. He did something incredible. And your name's Jacob? Yes, sir. You know that's a Bible name? Yes, sir. I've been told many times. And he had his name changed to Israel. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Do you ever read the Bible? I don't. So, uh, I don't? I've tried. It's. You've tried? I've tried. You couldn't read or something? <laughs> I can't understand it. You can't? Well, look, let me, let me start it off for you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's quite simple. Do you believe that? I don't. You don't. So what was in the beginning? In the beginning, there was nothing. So I believe in everybody has the right to an opinion, and your God is real if your God is real, and my God is real if my God is real. Okay, let's just take that to a logical conclusion. 
if my God's a pink elephant floating in the sky, is that real? It is real. No, it's not. There's no pink elephant floating in the sky just because I believe in it. Look, try that with the sun. Look at the sun and say, I believe it's made of ice and it comes out at night and it's square. No, it doesn't change reality is what I believe. Am I right? Yeah. <laughs> okay, in the beginning was nothing. Yes, sir. How did everything come about? Now, I'm talking about flowers and birds and trees, the sun, the moon, the stars, male and female, the marvels of the human eye, puppies and kittens. How did all that come about if there was nothing? I would like to say pure chance. Everything that's happened is all pure chance. Well, describe it to me. What happened in the beginning? Absolutely nothing. Well, so well, you have nothing if there was nothing in the beginning that created nothing. So you couldn't have creation if there was just nothing. Let me ask you guys a question. Do you believe the Bible's right when it says that we're in a state of hostility towards God? It says your mind, your natural mind, is in a state of anger towards God. Do you think that's true? My mind? Your mind. Yeah. What do you think, Jacob? I would think so. You think so? I would think so. I didn't have the choice to be put on this earth. Are you angry at God for giving you life? Yes, sir. Have you ever tried to commit suicide? To be honest, yes, sir. Uh, what caused that? Anger. Towards who? Anything and everything I could lay eyes on. I don't understand any of this. None of this is going to make sense, whether or not there is a deity or a God above us. Like this fly right here. This, like, It was pure chance that he came to us. No God, no being, no higher power told this fly, hey, come here at this time. And How do you know that? Huh? How do you know that? You seem very confident in your judgments. Because everything's up to pure chance. It can't be. That's absolutely impossible. I'll tell you why. Your focusing muscles move an estimated 100,000 times a day. Just one of your eyes. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Let me explain why I talk about us being in a state of hostility towards God. Nathan, you said you're not. Yes. Ever use God's name in vain? Yeah, I guess I have. That's using God's name as a cuss word. Have you done that, Jacob? Hundreds of times, sir. Yeah. Do you ever, would you ever use Hitler's name as a cuss word or someone evil in history? You never have, have you? Nobody does. Only Jesus Christ and God's name is used as cuss words. And that, that exemplifies how we're in a state of anger towards God. And the reason we're angry is because he demands moral accountability. You're doing things you know are morally wrong and you know God frowns on them and you don't like God for the same reason criminals don't like the police. Am I right? Yes, that would, that would be right. This whole place is a waste of time because of death. Yeah. This life is utterly depressing. Everything ends. No matter what you achieve, no matter what kind of person you are, everyone ends in some same way. Yeah. And that's what King Solomon said in the Bible. Nathan, have you heard of King Solomon? No. He's the wisest man to ever live outside of Christ. And this is what he said. Because of death, the whole of life is like chasing the wind. Utile, makes no sense because of that reality of death. He said everything dies, everything dies but God. Did you know that? He's eternal. Mm-hmm. Ever heard the Bible verse, the wages of sin is death? No, sir. It's very famous. It's saying that God is paying you in death for your sins. Like a judge looks at a criminal that's murdered multiple women, but he keeps saying, I'm a good person, judge. Judge says, I'm going to show you how serious your crime is. I'm giving you the death sentence. This is your wages. This is what you've earned. Guys, sin is so serious to a holy God, he's given you the death sentence. You're on death row. Your death will be evidence to you that God is deadly serious about sin. I see you nodding. Do you think God is justified to give you the death sentence for your sins? Are you that evil, or are you a good person? 
everyone's evil. Everyone creates destruction in some way or form. No one is innocent. That's exactly right. We've all earned our wages. So I'm just going to confirm it to you by looking at the commandments. Are you familiar with the Ten Commandments? I have heard of them, yes, sir. You know why you've heard of them? Because they're written on your conscience. You shall not steal. You shall not lie. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. It's the work of the law written on your heart. So how many lies have you told in your life? Plenty. Too many. Have you stolen something? No, sir. Yes. <laughs> Here's the seventh commandment. Jesus said, if you look at a woman and lust for her, you commit adultery with her in your heart. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust before marriage? Yes, sir. Yes. So, Nathan, summation for you in your court case. This is for you to judge yourself. You've told me that you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous, fornicating adulterer at heart. And, Jacob, you've told me you're a lying, blasphemous, fornicating adulterer at heart. So you've earned your wages. So here's where we're going with this. If God judges you by the Ten Commandments on Judgment Day, you're going to be innocent or guilty? Guilty. Guilty. Heaven or hell? Hell. Neither. Well, the Bible says all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. After death for judgment. Guys, you may not be concerned that you're going to hell, but it breaks my heart. I've just met you and I love you both. I don't want you to end up in hell. The Bible says it's a terrible place. If you think death is bad enough, fear of death, wait till you get on the other side and face the Holy God. I'd rather fall in the face of the sun than to fall into the hands of the living God. The Bible says it's a fearful thing. Do you know what God did for guilty sinners so we wouldn't have to go to hell? Forgave them? No. I can't imagine. You actually do know, but because you don't understand it, you don't value it. Nathan, do you know? Give him a second chance. No. You're going to nod when I say, if you heard of this? Have you heard of Jesus dying on the cross? I have the crucifixion. Almost everybody knows that, but they don't know this. And guys, if you can get a grip of this, it's going to change everything for you, so don't let anything distract you. The Ten Commandments are called the moral law. You and I broke the law. Jesus paid the fine. That's what happened on that cross. That's why he said it is finished just before he died. He was saying paid in full. Guys, if you're in court and you've got speeding fines, a judge will let you go if someone pays those fines. They say you're guilty, but if someone's paid your fine, you can leave, and it's legal. He lets you go. Well, God can legally take the death sentence off you because Jesus paid the fine in his life's blood because of his death and resurrection. And all you have to do to find everlasting life and get out of the futility of this existence is repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. Do you know what repentance is? Yes. You turn from sin. You don't play the hypocrite. If you're on a plane 10,000 feet up and you had to jump, why would you put on a parachute? To live. Yeah, you don't want to die. And the motivation is fear. And that fear is your friend. It's not your enemy. It's doing you a favor. And guys, because I love you, I've tried to put the fear of God in you today. I've tried to make you scared, make your mouth go dry a little, heart palpitate, hoping you'll see that fear is your friend, not your enemy. Because it'll make you mean business with a God that gave you life. And instead of going your own way, you'll be serious with God and say, God, I've done things I know are morally wrong. Fornicated, looked at pornography, used your holy name as a cuss word. I need your mercy. And if you repent and trust in Christ, you get everlasting life as a free gift, not because you're good, but because God is good and kind and rich in mercy. This is making sense. It can, within time. Okay, let me try and speed it up for you. You're on the edge of eternity. You could die tonight in your sleep and you'll go to hell. Nothing to think about. This is your life we're talking about, your precious life. It's not just your eyesight. You wouldn't sell an eye for a million dollars, would you? No, sir. You sell them both for a hundred million? 
Sure. Wouldn't even think of it because they're so precious to you. And your eyes are merely the windows of your soul. The real you looks out those eyes. And Jesus said you despise your eye compared to the value of your soul. He said if your eye calls you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it's better to enter heaven without an eye than go to hell with both your eyes where the fire is never quenched and the worm never dies. You going to think about what we talked about? Probably. Probably. What about you, Jacob? I love lessons, and if this is a lesson, I'll take it. Well, I want you to think about my tongue. Why am I talking to you with such passion? It's because I know what I'm saying is true, and I'm really concerned for your salvation. So I want you to go away here, not probably thinking about it, but realizing how serious this issue is. You could die in your sleep tonight. You may not get to get asleep. You could have an aneurysm, heart attack, killed on the way home. And you don't want to lose your precious life. Even though you say this life makes you mad, you love it. You love the blue sky, the sound of music, the sound of birds, love and laughter, friends and family. All those things are gifts from God. And you've lived with your back to them, and you need to turn to them and say, God, I need to change. I need you to give me a new heart. And the miracle of being born again or becoming a Christian is that God will give you a thirst for righteousness. Normally we drink in sin like water, the Bible says, and the minute God gets hold of you, you'll want to do that which is right, and that's your own personal miracle. Can I give you a book I've written called Scientific Facts in the Bible? Sure thing, sir. Do you still believe that everything came into being because of nothing, or are you beginning to rethink because of what we talked about? Your words are having influence. Oh, that's great. Let me see if I can prove God's existence to you in about 30 seconds, okay? Every building has a builder. You don't have to see the builder. He could have died 100 years ago, but you know there was a builder because buildings don't build themselves. Every painting is proof of a painter. painter could have died 500 years ago, but you'd never be so foolish to say the painting painted itself. The painting is evidence of the painter. And when you look at the sky, that's God's painting for you. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. The blueness of the sky, the puffiness of the clouds, the birds, flowers and the trees, all these things so beautifully and fearfully and wonderfully made. Plus, look in the mirror. You may not like what you see, but that's God's creation, giving you eyes, lungs, a brain to think with, blood in your veins, a skeleton to hold you up and skin to hold it all in. Fearfully and wonderfully made. So throw atheism out the door. Sir Isaac Newton said that atheism is so thoughtless, and it really is. It's just not thinking very deeply. So you're going to think about what we talked about? Yes, sir. I'm going to give you a Gospel of John. Do you know what that is? I believe I've heard of some. It's the fourth book of the New Testament, and a little booklet called Save Yourself from Pain. Let me grab it for you. The passion you're giving in a belief for the foundation of, of life is immaculate, sir. I, I respect it. I love it. Oh, that's I, great. I love passion, and if it's honest passion like the one I'm feeling from you, I'll, I'll, I'll believe it. Real quick, here are three things to help you grow in your faith. The Living Waters Podcast, the Evidence Study Bible, 200 of the most commonly asked questions for the Christian faith, and much more. The Starter Kit, four of the most popular gospel tracks, available at livingwaters.com. Massive Fossil Graveyards. This is Ken Ham, author and speaker on the authority of God's Word from the very first verse. Is the fossil record evidence for millions of years? If you think yes, consider this. Around the world, we find fossil graveyards. Now, these are massive deposits of billions of fossils buried together. 
For example, in one layer of the Grand Canyon, there are over 10,000 square miles of squid-like fossils. This means that billions of these creatures were buried all at once. And chalk beds that stretch from the Middle East across Europe into North America contain fossils of trillions of tiny marine creatures. What could possibly bury billions of creatures at once? Well, only the flood of Noah's day. Fossils are the result of creatures being buried quickly. Discover more about the global flood when you visit AnswersRadio.com. You can also plan your visit to the full-size Noah's Ark at AnswersRadio.com. Don't be so heavenly-minded that you're of no earthly good. Have you ever heard that expression before? It is a lie from the pit of hell. More accurately, don't be so earthly-minded that you're of no heavenly good. Jesus said to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all the things you need will be added to you. The writer of Hebrews said to desire a heavenly city. For here on earth we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Paul wrote to the Galatians to hold to the promise of the Jerusalem from above. And he told the Colossians, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. When your hope is in Christ and his kingdom, nothing else will satisfy. Sin won't be as tempting. The world's attractions won't be as attractive. Earning the world's favor won't matter. You will desire to please your king and share the message of his kingdom so others might believe and be saved. This world will perish in judgment, but the followers of Jesus will inherit his kingdom. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal, when we understand the text. The Flood Explains Fossils. This is Ken Ham, President of the Apologetics Ministry of Answers in Genesis. One of my favorite sayings is, if there really was a worldwide flood, what would you expect to see? Billions of dead things buried in rock layers, laid down by water all over the earth. And that's exactly what we find. You see, the flood would have ripped up miles of sediment and redeposited it in layers. This would have trapped and rapidly buried organisms, which became fossils. And this explains why we find fossil graveyards and rapidly buried creatures. Yes, the Bible's account of the flood explains what we see in the world around us. Millions of years certainly doesn't. The evidence, it confirms God's word beginning in Genesis. You'll learn more about geology and the global flood at AnswersRadio.com. Visit our website to discover the true history of the universe at AnswersRadio.com. You've heard the cliche, love the sinner, hate the sin. And as we've addressed in a previous video, that came from Gandhi, not the Bible. The Bible says everyone has sinned, and God hates sin so much he'll judge sinners to an eternity in hell. But he shows his love for us, and that while we were sinners, he sent his own son Jesus to die for us. Those who repent and believe in him will live. Some witty teachers have tried to take the cliche and morph it into a new adage. Love the sinner, hate your own sin. That might sound better, but what it communicates is that we shouldn't address anyone's sin but our own. That's not what the Bible says. 
in Matthew 7, 5, Jesus says to first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So address your own sin, yes, washed by the grace and forgiveness of Christ, but then care enough for your brother to lovingly correct his wrongs. Followers of Jesus have taken off the old self and all of its practices and put on the new self being renewed in the image of our Creator, and we're to help one another in this process of renewal. We find many passages clarifying which behaviors reflect sinfulness and which reflect godliness. For those who don't know Jesus, we are to warn the world they're headed for destruction for their sin, telling them what sin is and to repent and follow Jesus. How will they know unless they are told? What would truly be unloving is to know they're about to die and not warn them at all. When it comes to loving sinners and hating sins, how about this? Let's love what God loves and hate what God hates, and we know what those things are when we understand the text. doesn't tell us exactly. Reese, and my question is, why did God create sin and Satan in the first place, knowing we would sin? All right. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly why. God created, I don't, we say that God did not create evil, although I know the passage in Isaiah is translated in the old translation by I create evil and I bring prosperity, and that's one of the, that's the use of a parallelism. That is, I bring prosperity, I bring catastrophe. That's what that means, not that God creates moral evil. But God certainly did more than simply know that, that uh, our parents were going to fall into sin. If you can bear this, I'll quote Augustine. Augustine says that God ordains freely and immutably whatsoever comes to pass. And then the the parentheses that Augustine would, would say, in a certain sense. Now, God, if there is sin in this world, and there's a devil in this world, you know absolutely, that God ordained that there be a a devil, and that God ordained that human beings would sin. That's not the same thing as saying that God sinned. You might say, well, God, that was a bad thing that you did for creating the devil, or a bad thing that you did to uh, having creatures that would sin against you. Now, we never can, we're never allowed to call good evil or evil good. Now, here's the difficult thing I want you to say. I want you to understand that evil is evil. It is not good. But it is good that there is evil. There is good. It is good that there is a devil, or there wouldn't be a devil, or there wouldn't be sin, because God has ordained both the existence of Satan and the uh, existence of sin and everything that God ordains ultimately is good. You can chew on that for a little while. <laughs> good afternoon. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. That's something to keep in mind any time someone says that God told them something. 
Everything we could ever want to hear God say has already been said in the Bible. God spoke through his prophets who gave us the Old Testament, and in these last days he has spoken through his son, Jesus Christ, whose apostles gave us the New Testament. Now, the Bible is not just an old book of what God said in the past. When we read the book of Hebrews, the writer quotes the Old Testament as something God is saying to us right now. We read in Hebrews 4.12 that the word of God is living and active. God does speak to us. He speaks through the scriptures. He does not speak to us through visions or inner voices. If a person says to you, God told me, what comes next should be a passage from the Bible. Otherwise, what they're claiming is that the subjective voice they heard in their head is equally as reliable and authoritative as the Bible. Proverbs 28.26 says, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. Proverbs 3.5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Psalm 119 says that God's word is firmly fixed. It is by his word we can test all other words. As Justin Peters has said, if you want to hear God speak to you, read the Bible. If you want to hear him speak to you out loud, read the Bible out loud. We hear the very word of God when we understand the text. That's all I got for Truth Be Told Radio today. Um, Thanks for listening. Enjoy us next time, Sunday, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Pacific. And bye for now. Thanks for listening and join us next time as we shine the light of biblical truth on Truth Be Told Radio.